This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Uh, there are nervous people all over the place right now uh, wondering about what's going to happen at 10 o'clock this morning. That's when the uh, Bank of Canada will announce whether or not they're going to raise interest rates today. Now, this is, this is news because if they do it, uh, it's going to be the first time in a long time that they have done it. Uh, and uh, because we've been riding pretty high at 0.5%, 0.5%. And uh, they're suggesting that it could go to 0.75%. Doesn't sound like a lot, but it could have serious consequences for an awful lot of people for a lot of reasons. Try to make some sense out of all this. We're pleased to welcome Ian Lee to the program from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University up in Ottawa. Ian, how are you doing this morning? morning, Bill. I'm doing just fine. Uh, all the major banks, except for uh, TD, I believe, are, are suggesting this is going to happen. Uh, TD yeah. is kind of hedging their bets right now. Uh, l- look in now. Give me a little crystal ball gazing here. Do you think that they're going to move ahead on this? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, and I'm not just, you know, just saying that out of thin air. I read very closely and carefully the publications, the utterances, the quotes, the speeches by the governor of the Bank of Canada, that's the person who's going to decide to put the interest rates up or not, as well as his deputy governors. There's about six deputy governors. They give these speeches across Canada to chambers of commerce and so forth, won't get into the weeds. Suffice to say, in the last four weeks, all the clues or signals coming out of the words of his own mouth, the governor, Governor Polaz, and a couple of the deputy governors have very clearly indicated that they will be raising interest rates. I'll give you one quote. Governor Polaz said that the, high inter- the low interest rates have done their job. That's past tense. He didn't say they're still doing their job. He said they have done their job. And then in another uh, interview he gave, he talked about how the economy is growing very sharply. In fact, their last publication on the economy just uh, two weeks ago showed that other than inflation, most of the metrics are moving up. That is to say, capacity is getting tighter, uh, wages are moving up, maybe not a huge amount, but they're going up, not down. Unemployment is going down, so that the, all of the empirical data is showing, again, a tightening of the economy as the economy is getting stronger and stronger. And so that's why I think that he's going to announce a quarter of a percent increase today. Let me ask you something about that, because I'm, I'm getting a lot of feedback. When we saw that story a couple of days ago, Ian, we mentioned that and, and, and used some of the rationale that, uh, that, as you say, has been slowly but surely seeping out of the Bank of Canada and their, their missives over the last couple of days. But what I'm hearing back is, well, you know what, that's the way it may look to some of these guys sitting up in their, their glass tower in Ottawa. Talk to the everyday Canadian, and they're going to tell you, we don't see evidence that the economy is getting a whole lot better. There, there's A lot of people stay, like, things are still pretty rough down here. Right. Um, and I, I want to be very respectful of, uh, of, of ordinary Canadians. I'm an ordinary Canadian. I have a mortgage. Uh, but at the same time, you know, let me draw an analogy. If I have a problem with my heart, I'm actually getting my knee done in September. Well, I'm not going to go to a person who um, uh, sells clothing uh, to get him to solve my knee problem, which is a knee replacement surgery. Okay, I'm going to go to an expert on who does knee replacement surgery. And so, well, I don't dis- I'm not diminishing, I'm not being uh, disrespectful to people who have anecdotal data. They have the big picture. They have the most powerful computer in the economy. Uh, of the Canadian economy. And by the way, some people listening will say, ah, I don't care about those statistics. But they don't just use statistics. They actually go out and survey, guess who? Companies, CEOs, hiring managers. They actually survey entrepreneurs. In fact, the study that just came out two weeks ago that I referred to 
was a survey of loan officers across Canada saying, what's happening? How much are you lending? Are people coming in the door borrowing money? Uh, that sort of thing. So they use a combination of herd empirical data, such as the growth rate, the inflation rate, and so forth, but they're also using, uh, call it softer data, they're talking to people, business people, hiring people across the country. They don't just sit in an ivory tower in Ottawa and never venture out. In fact, if you look at the speeches, because they're all on the website of the Bank of Canada, they're all across the country. You know, they give speeches in Saskatoon and in Newfoundland and Labrador and so forth, where they're talking to regular business people in those cities about economic conditions. And so the data, the preponderance of the data shows that the economy is getting stronger. So, but, you know, that, that's, I'm, I guess you could say I'm defending Bank Canada, but I just want to point something out. These interest rates that we have had for the past seven years are unprecedented. They're not normal. They're abnormal. Let me use stronger ordinary English. They're weird. They're weird. We've never in Canadian or American history had interest rates this low. Some people say, well, hey, great. You know, it's a good thing. That's fun. That's great. Why, why knock it? Well, one, it's not all good news. There's no free lunch. There's always a price for everything that you have to pay. And these low interest rates are doing two things. And this is what worries the Bank of Canada. They're creating asset bubbles. In other words, people are driving up the cost of real estate because the, the cost of financing the real estate is so cheap. And so that's one problem. It creates asset bubbles. And then the, the, the second problem is that it's playing havoc with our pension plans across Canada. I'm talking defined benefit pension plans because the, 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 uh, the, the, the amount of money that the pension plan earns is, is based on their investments. And when interest rates are at all-time lows, they're earning lower returns on the pension funds. So a lot of pension funds are underwater. The University of Toronto, I know not everybody works there. I don't work there, but I'm just giving this as an example. The University of Toronto Pension Fund, which is not just the professors, but all the support staff, has a $1.5 billion unfunded liability. And so the best antidote or cure for these thousands of pension funds that are underwater is to have higher rates of return so they can make more money, and that will reduce without getting into the accounting and the actuarial stuff. When the rate of return goes up on a pension plan, typically the unfunded liability goes down because they're making more money. So there's two separate reasons why we should be applauding, weird as that sounds, why we should encourage higher interest rates. Is One is, is it's going to uh, mitigate these asset bubbles that are occurring these phenomenal increases in real estate in the Toronto, the GTA, Golden Horseshoe area, and Vancouver. And secondly, it's going to reduce the havoc and the damage it's caused to thousands of pension plans across Canada that represent thousands and even millions of Canadians. A couple of things about that, then. Let's talk about a couple of those issues. And, and the defined pension plans, we'll go there. Uh, is it not true that 66% of the people in this country don't even have pension plans anyway? So they would look at that and say, well, who cares? It doesn't impact me. Yeah. Um, that's rough. I, I, what well, we can quibble, I think, is 60, 62 percent. Uh, it's still, yeah, a significant way, number. It roughly corresponds, and I mean, this is very crude on my part, meaning intellectually, methodologically, but it roughly corresponds to the number of people working in small business, small and medium-sized businesses, which typically do not have pension plans for their employers, for their employees. Some do, most don't. And so you could say, well, then, so what? Well, <laughs> 
because we have a problem doesn't mean we want to make it a bigger problem and say, oh, well, let's go screw or blow up the pension plans for the other 40% that do have a pension plan and push them back onto government through CPP enhancement uh, and increased uh, premiums or through old age pensions and so forth. So, I mean, there's no, again, there's no free lunch. If, if those employee uh, pension plans are doing badly, uh, and by the way, those defined benefit plans are in the private sector mostly. I mean, there's, there's a lot in the public sector too, but they're backed up by government. Look at Sears. Look at the problem with the Sears pensioners. And so do we really want No, we've that? seen that here with Stelco. We've seen so that Stelco here with the auto Stelco. workers, sure. Yeah, so do we really want to encourage a situation that causes more Stelco pension uh, disasters or more Sears pension disasters? I don't think anybody advocates that. And, and as I said, these rates are at levels never been seen before. I was a mortgage manager in the 1970s and the 1980s, early 80s, when interest rates peaked at 20%. I was there. Okay, so when people start crying caw crocodile tears over a mortgage at 3, going up to 3.5 or 4.2, forgive me, I don't have a lot of sympathy. Here's the here's the other thing though, Ian. 20%. You mentioned the fact that uh, that for a variety of reasons, these I think somebody could describe them as abnormally low rates, have been in play for about seven years now, give or, give or take. Correct. But for many people, though, that means that that has become the new normal. Yes, and and people have based their economic status yes. on those rates. Now, they've purchased houses. They've sent yep. their kids to university. Now all of a sudden you're saying, yeah, that's not going to be the rule anymore. That's right. Uh, and people are going to say, well, wait a second. Yeah. Wait a second. You know the impact that's going to have on me? And you've seen those numbers that... Yeah. They're saying it well on mortgages alone. It could be an additional 140 to 150 bucks per month for some families. Yeah. On top of a number of other things that we could talk about as well. That's a significant, a significant yeah. hit on people that are living paycheck to paycheck. You, you're right, and I'm glad you brought that up because I did want to talk about that. Because uh, I'm an academic, I like to classify things because it's easier to understand things when we have things put into categories. The borrowers, and I'm just talking retail, consumers, not businesses. Let's leave businesses out of this for a moment. We can okay. talk about that after if we want. Sure. There's four classes of borrowers in Canada, or four categories. The first one we never talk about are those who are debt-free. And you say, well, everybody's indebted. Actually, according to CMHC, almost half of all the homeowners in Canada are mortgage debt-free. So there's one category. They don't care if interest rates go up because... They don't have a mortgage, or they, or they have a tiny mortgage. So let's, let's, let's put away that, that urban legend that every Canadian is up to their ears in debt. That's not true. A number, a percentage are, but nowhere near the majority. Now, let's go into the last three categories, which are real debtors. There's mortgage debt, there's personal loan slash car loan debt, and there's credit card debt. Okay, so there's my three buckets for everybody to think about, Okay. So about two-thirds of all that famous $2 trillion that we owe in money, about two-thirds of that is mortgage debt. But remember, most of those mortgages are on fixed minus on a closed mortgage for five years. So even though the interest rate goes up today, I think it will, anybody with a fixed-rate mortgage is protected until their mortgage comes up for renewal, which might be one year, two years, three years from now. Okay, so the impact is not going to be devastating overnight immediately. And for those with floating rate mortgages out there in Radio Land, I have some good advice for you. Go lock in your mortgage now because rates are not going back down. They're going to continue to go up. If you believe that, lock in your mortgage for five years. Then there's the second category, business and, and uh, personal loans, floating loans, whatever you want to call them. And they're typically much higher, well, around 8%. 
six to eight uh, percent, they're higher than mortgage loans. But they're smaller amounts for shorter durations. It's a car loan for twenty-five thousand for three or five years, not a three hundred thousand mortgage for twenty-five years. And and they're typically on a fixed rate loan. When you buy a car loan, you have a rate contracted for the life of the loan. So just because the bank puts up interest rates doesn't mean your car loan payment's going to go up. It's not. And then the third category are the credit cards. And I don't just mean Visa and MasterCard. I'm talking about all of those department store cards, Petro-Canada cards and uh, Home Depot cards and Canadian Tire cards and Sears cards. And that's the worst form of debt of all because they're 28 to 30% interest. I have been saying since I was a mortgage manager 35, 40 years ago to anybody who will listen to me, cut up those cards and stop using them immediately. If you're going to use a credit card, and I'm not saying I'm not being idealistic in the ivory tower. I understand people need to use credit cards, but if you're going to, use a bank credit card. They're only, I say only, 18%. Now, some people say that's outrageous. Well, if you think 18% is outrageous, what do you think of 28 or 30% at Home Depot or Canadian Tire or any of these other credit card, gas credit cards and department store credit cards? They're the worst of the worst of the worst. Get rid of them and at least only use 18% credit cards. My point in talking about this is the Bank of Canada rate does not affect credit cards because they're charging such high rates that they don't go up or down. They're already astronomically high. So what am I saying? What's the big picture takeaway? Most Canadians will not be affected immediately by the rate increase. Some will, yes, but a very small number of the total 36 million Canadians or the 19 million Canadians who are employed. But I've talked to some bankers over the last uh, couple of weeks about these sorts of things, too. And, 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 and they, by the way, they concur with the, some of the numbers you've talked about here, that, yes, there are a lot more Canadians that are, are, are living mortgage-free. But he said even some of those people have taken out home equity lines of credit against yeah. their houses, yeah. and that is going to be impacted. So there's still yeah. going to be a, a, a concern and a cost to an awful lot of these people who may not be making mortgage payments. But let's face it, with these yeah. low rates, and, and the banks have encouraged this, Ian, you know that. Yeah. They've gone to you and said, look, Bill, you know, uh, let's don't take out a loan here. Why don't you just get a line of credit against your house? Fix the roof. I know it's going to cost you $5,000, yeah. but you don't have to do that. And and now what's going to happen with this increase is a lot of people are going to say, you know what, I can't pay that off anymore. I'm just going to have to wait and, and you know, ride it out. And when I sell the house, obviously I'm going to be out the $5,000. Um, I don't think it's that bad. Uh, I do believe, uh, look, I've, I've, I've studied these numbers over and over. And as I said, I was in 10 years in, in the lending business. I lent millions of dollars when I was at the bank over that period of time. Where were you when I needed you? <laughs> <laughs> um, the, when you look at that famous $2 trillion and, and people just about freak out, okay, and they say, oh, my God, that's just, that's just a staggering amount, they always forget the other side. The other side of the, of the debt is the asset side. People don't realize that Canadians have 10, I'm talking personal assets, not government assets, not corporate assets. These are the personal, this is StatsCan data. $10 trillion of gross assets in Canada. Now, that's real estate assets, cottage assets, investments in the stock market, RSPs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and pensions, your paid-up portion of a pension plan. So you have $10 trillion. We, aggregate Canadians, have $10 trillion in assets, minus the $2 trillion in debt, aggregate personal debt, mortgage debt, personal debt, credit card debt, leaves a net worth of eight trillion dollars or StatsCan data an average per person net wealth of almost 
$300,000. Now, some people out in Radio Land will say, wait a minute, I don't have net worth of 300000 and I never said you did. These are averages. So older people have a lot more, I'm one of them, have a lot more than 300000 Well, younger people have, guess what, a lot less. So when you're young, you have debts and very little assets. And as you get older, you pay down your debts and your assets go up. And so the net worth of Canadians on average across the country for adults is 300000 net worth. So the idea that we're all or many or most of us are on the edge of bankruptcy is simply not sustainable on terms of the herd numbers. To go bankrupt, you have to be unable to pay your bills as they become due. Most Canadians can. I'm guessing there's probably about 10% which is a significant number of Canadians who are going to find tough times ahead. That means 90% of us will not. Do I feel sorry for those 10%? Yes, I do. But that's not 100%. It's uh, it's going to be interesting to see just what happens. Like I say, we're about eight or nine minutes away from the Bank of Canada making their announcement, and uh, the speculation I, I think is actually going to come to fruition, and we'll see what the reaction is going to be. Ian, thanks as always for jumping in. Really appreciate the time today. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Ian Lee, of course, from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML. Uh, let's talk about uh, what's going on in Ottawa these days. Uh, Canada Day came, and it was a big event, and uh, this, it's the summer break, of course, for the federal politicians, and you figure, well, the heat's off them for a, most part anyway, uh, notwithstanding the little blip about the Prime Minister forgetting about Alberta in his uh, Canada Day speech. But over and above that, there have been a couple of hot potatoes that have been handed to the Prime Minister. One, obviously, was the Omar Khadr deal, which... Uh, has really riled a number of Canadians. The other one is something that uh, came to a head the other day, and uh, and that, of course, was another resignation from a, a very important committee that the uh, the Prime Minister set up, of course, and that's to do with uh, Indigenous uh, and Northern Affairs and the uh, investigation that's going on there. The Minister, of course, uh, Carolyn Bennett, made the announcement yesterday about yet another member of that committee resigning. Tim Harper writes about this. He's a freelance writer and editor. His uh, story appears in the Toronto Star today, 10 Days, Two Crises in Trudeau's Midterm Summer. And Tim joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Tim, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Bill. i got to tell you, I'm way ahead of you. i got four uh, way before this hike rate today, so, uh, you know, good luck catching up to me. Well, <laughs> but but they say it's going to be fine, and, and of course, when have they ever lied to us or misled us, so we're going to be good. We're going to be good. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about the Prime Minister's uh, not-so-glamorous uh, uh, adventures over the last 14 or 15 days. Uh, and like I say, the, the thing on Canada Day, missing Alberta, that was a blip, and he corrected that. But, I mean, some people are going to make hay about this. But the other two issues you write about in the, in the column today, Tim, this is, this is pretty important stuff. It is. And, you know, beware of um, uh, unexpected summer developments, uh, Bill. You know, we, we have this tendency, as you said off the top, to think, well, you know, there's Canada Day, um, and then um, Trudeau's going to go off to a G20, and then he's addressing uh, the U.S. governor's meeting this week. He's going to have a sit-down with Mike Pence. And then, you know, basically it's cottage time and selfie time and um, hiking time for him and so on. But sometimes... Um, um, Summers can get quite perilous um, when least expected. So we're still talking about the Cotter settlement, what, 10 days after, uh, 11 days after the story broke. So there's uh, this fierce pushback against this deal for uh, Omar Carter across the country shows really no sign of abating. And I think that perhaps the, the government miscalculated um, the, the reaction to this. Uh, it now looks like this, this story has what we call legs and is, is, is certainly... If it doesn't um, 
continue throughout the summer. It's going to come back up in the fall for sure. Tim, let me let me ask you something here. I, I was looking over some archived stories from a, a, a little while ago, specifically back to the days when Stephen Harper uh, issued the apology on behalf of the government uh, towards uh, Mar Arar, uh, and, and a $10 million payment at that time as well. Uh, I don't recall that there's that level of outrage then than there is now. A couple of differences, I suppose. There was an inquiry uh, into uh, what exact, exactly happened to Mahar Arar. Uh, By Justice Arar, O'Connor, yeah. Yeah, and Arar was never uh, uh, accused of killing anyone. Um, I think this is this is what's happening here. You can forget, as you know, and I'm sure you've heard from um, uh, listeners uh, throughout the last 10 days on this, you can talk about the Charter of Rights and the rule of law and child soldiers and mistreatment of Gitmo and the complicity of Canadian CSIS agents and so on until you're blue in the face. There are a lot of Canadians who can't get past this view that he's a terrorist and the government has just given him $10.5 million. End of story. Um, being, uh, of course, exploited by the by the conservatives, who, in my view, are, uh, are exhibiting quite a um, uh, a level of hypocrisy. Because if you actually go back and look at how we got here, a lot of that ten point five uh, million that bill was run up by the amount of time that Omar Khadr spent in Guantanamo Bay uh, because of the stubborn refusal of Stephen Harper Stephen Harper to repatriate him, even as our allies around the world were repatriating uh, prisoners out of Guantanamo Bay. And compensating them well ahead of what uh, what the Trudeau government had to do here, so it, it's a tough one because it, it tends to get reduced to a, a bumper sticker: terrorist, ten point five million dollars. Uh, it's a complex story, and I'm not saying that people who are opposed to it um, don't understand it. I'm not going to play that you know sort of a elite media game that hey, go back and read the Supreme Court judgment. It's just a very difficult uh, thing for people to get past that this guy was. Um, Part of a terrorist family, uh, he confessed to killing someone, whether uh, uh, under duress or not, uh, and they think he's won the lottery. Um, I vehemently disagree, but I, you know that's what I'm hearing, and that's what the polls are showing. Well, exactly, and and I find it very frustrating too. And I I know my friend Michael Corrin's written about this, and he's been chastised, and 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 there've been a number of people, varying degrees, in every newspaper of the country about this stuff, Tim, and. Uh, and, and it's almost uh, the people that have made their mind up about the, the Cotter thing are saying, don't let the facts get in the way. I've already made up my opinion, my mind about this, and I have my opinion on this. And they want to ignore the Supreme Court decision. They want to ignore the fact that he was eight years old when his parents took him over there. Uh, they want to ignore the fact that, in the, as far as I can hear, there, you see, there has been never in the history of warfare anybody that's been charged with murder in war. Uh, yet this 14- or 15-year-old kid was. It's just There's so many bizarre aspects to this whole thing. But it's the number, I think, that seems to bother people, and the apology. And the apology. And I mean, even to go back to the Harper situation with uh, with Arar, you may remember at that time, Tim, I think you wrote about it at the time, even then Stephen Harper wouldn't call it a... Uh, a, a government apology. He wanted to make it a parliamentary apology, as if, it, hey, it wasn't us in the Conservative Party that wanted to do this, but the Parliament will, because he still had a minority government in those days. There are two things, obviously, we have to keep in mind, too. When you look at the numbers of uh, other uh, Gitmo detainees who've been uh, compensated by their, their governments, uh, I'm thinking of the UK and Australia here, yeah. this is a larger settlement, and Canada is alone in issuing the apology. Uh, there may be something else at play here, too. And we've talked about this in the past, um, talking about the ascension of Donald Trump and so on. There, there, it may be that the, the, the longer I write about it and you talk about it and others write about it, 
in favor of the government doing the right thing that we actually drive up opposition because there is this distrust of the media and this view that these are just elite pundits who are telling me, Joe Blow, what I should think. And and I, I don't buy that. I'm not going to listen to what the Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail, or CHML, or CBC says. Um, and, you know, I think it has a counter... It, it, it has a counterweight. The more uh, people try to justify it in the media, it plays into this distrust of the media uh, and uh, this view that I know what I know. And, um, you know, it's not going to stop me from writing about it, but when I write about it, I, 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 and, you know, colleagues of mine who've written about it uh, far more often uh, than I, like my colleague Michelle Shepard, has literally written the book on it. Um, and she has done a, a, an Emmy Award winning documentary on this. Uh, guy's plight. The piece that the piece that she and the star published, I guess, was earlier this week, Tim. Uh, I, I ask people to go back in the archives. It's very insightful, and and I think fact, you're right. Yeah. It, it's a very step by step process here, and and very objective uh, about the whole thing as well. I mean, it's the uh, she's done her homework on this whole thing, and she was there from well, day she's one. Been covering she's been covering this for 15 years. Yeah, she's an expert on it, and um, and I know just from uh, talking to her and following her social media. Uh, uh, feed that uh, it's very frustrating to her that uh, you know people have just tossed away 15 years worth of, of uh, coverage and knowledge of this and have just um, sort of reacted to as I say, well here's a terrorist he won the lottery he's lucky I hear people say he's what a lucky guy well I don't know <laughs> spend want to uh, walk a mile in his shoes yeah spend some years being tortured in Guantanamo Bay and tell me how lucky you feel after that so you know that's. Uh, that's my view. Uh, that, but the government, I, uh, I, I know the government knew that this was going to be a um, uh, a tough sell. Uh, it may turn out to be a much tougher sell than they anticipated. And, and and there are some politics and some some other overtones to this too that we don't need to get into. But you know that they're there. And well, and and you know what? I don't think anybody's going to change their mind. I, you're right. In the passage of time, uh, those that hate Trudeau are going to continue to hate him. Those that don't like uh, Arar, those that don't, some people don't like Muslims. A, let's face it. Time and place. You know, when this whole thing happened, Guantanamo Bay and everything else, there was a huge backlash against Muslims right around the world, and, and especially so here in North America because of some of the rhetoric that was going on at the time. And and that has a play in this as well. But it, uh, you're, you're right. I, I think it, this, the story probably will die down, but nobody's really going to say, you know what, I think you guys were right and I was wrong. I don't hear a whole lot of that going on. But well, the other... You know, go ahead. I was just going to say, look, we're, we're two years out from an election. Um, it, it, I, I could be totally wrong. Maybe this becomes shorthand for everything that people uh, don't like about Justin Trudeau. But I can't imagine that two years from now we're still going to be talking about this. Um despite the best efforts of the conservative opposition. I'm sure they can drag this into the fall session. They're going to make some liberals feel very uncomfortable. You're going to have some liberal MPs feeling very uncomfortable at barbecues and such, I'm sure, uh, this summer. But um, just, you know, from past experience on um, attention spans and memories and so on, I I am skeptical that this becomes an election issue, but we'll have to see how it plays out. Let's talk about the other uh, element that you wrote about in the piece today, the missing and murdered Indigenous women's and girls inquiry. Now, this, this now to some people, may say, well, what's the big deal about this? Uh, this is a big deal for the Trudeau government, and especially because the previous government, of course, Tim, Har- or T- Tim Harper, sorry, Tim, but didn't mean to put you in that spot, <laughs> but uh, Stephen Harper wouldn't even strike a committee like this, uh, saying that it would have been redundant. We already know the answer. This is just a criminal case. We don't need an inquiry. Trudeau promised all the way through the campaign we're going to do this uh the aboriginal community gravitated i think to justin trudeau because of this embraced this idea and said this is great what's going on here yeah and i find i actually think this is far more important to the country yeah. right now uh let alone the government 
And by the way, none of the opposition parties are against this. This is even the conservatives after Harper left. Ronna Ambrose, one of the first things she did was turn around and say, yeah, we support this inquiry. Mm -hmm. This should have been uh, what you call low-hanging fruit for the government, and it was one of the first things that they announced after they were elected in 2015. But uh, to watch this thing get bogged down and head towards the ditches, as it appears to be, um, is hard to watch because it's going to play into every cynical appraisal out there in the country about uh, inquiries and spending money and then becoming talk shops and, and nothing ever changes. And at this point in our history, I think it's really crucial that we don't have another one of those. Uh, but it's not it's inconceivable to me that it's going to meet its deadline. It's inevitable that they're going to come back and ask for more money. Uh, we're sitting here, um, we talked about this last week, we're sitting here in July 2017. They've had three days of hearings. They've lost more uh, officials than they've had days of hearings. They've lost five officials, and now they've lost um, Marilyn Potra, the, uh, one of the commissioners. Now, it is possible that, uh, as some were suggesting yesterday, that Potra was a bit of a, a roadblock when it came to consensus among the five commissioners, and her departure might speed things. But like most Canadians, I'm getting increasingly skeptical. This, uh, well, it's the optics here, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, it's it's not what, with respect, it's not what you and I think of it. It's what um, Indigenous organizations are saying about it and the frustration being felt by families who, you know, the, who've been calling for this for years. And this is supposed to be an opportunity for, if not closure, um, an opportunity that they have been seeking for years to try to find um, some answers, and the country needs some answers as to um, why so many Aboriginal, Indigenous women and girls have been murdered. And we just seem to be caught in this morass that this, this commission looks so bureaucratic that it's playing to every caricature that you have uh, of a, a bloated inquiry that it spends more time talking to their legal counsel than the people they're supposed to be soliciting um, a testimony from. You know, it was somebody reminded me yesterday, Bill, that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and it's true, went through uh, awful growing pains early on, and Murray Sinclair managed to pull that through and develop, and and, and um, give the country a, a, one of the most important um, reports the country's ever um, ever had. So, you know, you don't want to see it come off the rails. But as I say, I'm, I'm getting skeptical that they're going to be able to do this without the government stepping in and, and resetting this somehow. Tim, great piece on the star today, as always. Thank you so much for the time. It's greatly appreciated. Great to talk to you, Bill. Thank you for calling. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We brought this story to you earlier this week, and of course I'm sure you've been watching the coverage on uh, the television news over the last couple of days about the wildfires going on in British Columbia. We talked with our sister station, CKNW, in Vancouver the other day about uh, the impact that it was having, uh, not just on the economy, but on people, of course, and well, the numbers are rather staggering, and I know that uh, here in Ontario, I know we we have wildfires here too, especially up in the northern areas, uh, but nowhere near to the uh, the same level or extent that uh, that they do in British Columbia. This is almost, as we heard the other day, a, an annual event where they they count on the fact that okay, this is going to happen. We know it's going to happen, and it did. And uh, it's not uh, as some of the wildfires that we've talked about in California over the last little while. Uh, not caused by human error, at least we don't think so anyway. The authorities think that weather is a major factor here. It's just, it was dry, and there are severe thunder and lightning storms, of course, in, in those areas, in the wooded areas up in British Columbia, and that starts these fires. 
And uh, because of that, of course, evacuations have had to take place. Thousands of people have already been evacuated from their homes. Uh, We're told almost 15,000 in total. And according to Newman numbers from the B.C. Wildlife Service, there are about 202 different fires that are burning right now, about 70,000 hectares across the province. Many of those 200 fires are out of control, and that's uh, causing problems, obviously, as they spread, as wind conditions and weather conditions change. Uh, all of a sudden, communities, uh, people that are living in, in solitude are, are being told, look, you got to move. There's a safety issue here. What's that like? What's it like to have to pack up and, and get out because of, a, of an impending dangerous natural situation like that? Well, uh, our next guest uh, is one of the people that went through this. Uh, Kira Thomas is B- with BC Wildlife Evacuee. Uh, she was up there in that area. She is out of there now, safely, thankfully, and uh, able to join us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about her experience. Kira, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, you're in Calgary right now. What were you doing up in British Columbia? Well, my husband and I relocated from Ontario, actually, um, out west about two years ago. Um, it's I mean, it's beautiful there, the landscape, the atmosphere, um, the laid-back mentality of being out west. Um, we found great employment, so everything fell together very well up until... D- did employment take now. you out there? Was there an opportunity for you, or did you just love the countryside? Both. Um, I think in Ontario, you know, you can find many, many jobs, but it's hard to secure full-time employment. Yeah. Um, so I was able to go out there with... Um, good education and find a full-time employment uh, right away. So that was a real big plus. Now, whereabouts were you? You weren't right in Vancouver, were you? No, I live in 100 Mile House. Ah, okay, which is one of the hot spots, and I mean that figuratively and literally. Yes, Now, exactly. that's that's an interesting area. Maybe for the, the listeners who don't know about that area, you could talk about that community. That's interesting. Yes, so 100 Mile House is within um, the district of the South Caribou region, so the interior of B.C., um, we're about an hour south of Williams Lake um, and two hours northwest, I believe, of Kamloops, just geographically. And uh, so just so people have some perspective on there. So uh, you're you're right in the thick of things, literally, uh, you know, when we start talking about the forest fire potential like that. I, I got to ask you, when you guys decided to settle in that particular community, were you aware of the potential for something like this to happen? Um, it's always been talked about, and we always know that there there is a risk. Um, we definitely didn't anticipate it hitting so close to home, um, but, I mean, it's something that is, is always a topic of conversation in B.C. I, I was mentioning on the show the other day when we were talking with our, our, our compatriots from CKNW in Vancouver uh, about the situation that was going on. Uh, that I have some friends who live in the Los Angeles area, and they were telling me the same thing. That uh, and they're transplanted Ontarians too. They're from from Hamilton and Oakville, actually, and and have been down there for about twenty odd years. And they were telling me, I said, "Well, what about the earthquakes? What about the you know the fires?" And they said, "It's there. You know, it's it's kind of you know it's there. It, it may impact you. It may not." Uh, and you know, and they said, you know, it gets a little sketchy from time to time. But on the other hand, it says life goes on. I guess that's pretty much the attitude you have to take in British Columbia too. Yeah, it is. And, it, I mean, it's very surreal. Everyone talks about it. You know, we all hear about it. Even, you know, the recent last year of Fort McMurray, like that, you know, is still fresh in everyone's memory. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's a very different experience having to actually experience it firsthand, seeing the smoke and, of course, having to leave. Well, talk, talk to us about this year's, this year's experience then. What happened when you were living in this community? Uh, we heard the stories, as we do about every spring slash summer, that these things start to happen. 
at what point did did you and and your family realize? Wait a second, this uh, this is getting pretty close. Well, it 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 started very close. So it was very clear from the beginning that it was a risk. Um, every spring and summer, it's dry. It's the climate. It's the atmosphere. Everyone expects it. Um, so it's just a point of everyone being safe. And, you know, when lightning hits or when there is a man-made or caused fire, you know, we have to be very, very careful. Um, the Augustuson fire, which is the big, one of the bigger ones, um, started approximately like 15 kilometers from our house, um, back up in the wooded area. So we were very familiar with the area where it started. Uh, we could see the smoke everyone in town could see the smoke um and it was just a matter of where's the fire gonna go and it was just a waiting game from there that's huge i mean that one that the fire that you're referring to that's what about five thousand hectares that's a big one it is yes what's that like to sit there and and uh, even before you realized that the danger was starting to, to spread and become more more concerning to you right now to to see the smoke in the distance to smell it i know that you can smell it i mean depending on which way the wind's going even though it's some some kilometers away uh, you know it's there you can take a deep breath and say yeah that's burning wood all right yeah and i mean at first it, it's really interesting and everyone's like wow like that's so cool like it's you know, it's interesting to see such a large amount of smoke and, like, the billows and, like, the colors of it. You know, everyone's, like, taking pictures and looking. And then it gets to a point where, like, wait, like, this is this is serious. Like, this is traveling. We can see it growing. And then it becomes very unnerving from there. And, again, you just, you hope that it doesn't come, but then it's very hard to relax knowing that something is so close to your home. It, it's got to be a rather uh, startling moment when uh, when you transition from that curiosity about what's going on to all of a sudden, whoa, wait a second, uh, the, the, you know, we're, we're, we're in the line here. Yes, exactly. And I think one of the bigger challenges throughout this whole experience has been um, creditable information and knowing what's really going on trying to get information from the proper authorities versus just seeing what's on Facebook and social media and, you know, rumors spread about where the fire is going, where it's not going, what's been damaged, what's not, you know, when are we supposed to leave, all of those things. So it's been a challenge as well just to stay focused and to try to stay calm and gather the correct information as well. What was it like in the community as this was starting to develop? I mean, not just the fire, but the story itself, Kira, at at 100 Mile House. Because uh, we saw this, I'm glad you referenced Fort McMurray, because we saw this with some of the coverage there last year from uh, some of our friends at Global TV. Mm-hmm. That A lot of the residents said, look, I've been living here for 30 years or 40 years or whatever. Uh, this thing happens. It's going to blow over. It's not going to happen. There was almost this denial that, that there were there's any pending danger. Did, did you get that sense from some of your neighbors that that's, that's the way it was going to happen this year, too? A little bit, yeah. I think we've gotten, or everyone has experienced, like, the full spectrum from very laissez-faire to, like, nope, it's not a big deal, it'll blow over, to complete panic. Um, I think some of, like, the long-term locals were, were a lot more calm and just very blunt saying, you know what, we're ready to go. If we need to go, we'll go. Whatever will be, will be. Um, whereas others were, were a lot more hectic and a lot more scared, which is totally understandable. Um, I myself went through the whole range and back and forth and back and forth, but I think that's all part of the process as well. Um, The community itself was amazingly supportive. It still is. Um, 100 Mile House was an evacuation site Mm -hmm. for um, 108 Ranch, which was evacuated first. So that's 
obviously eight miles from 100 Mile. Um, so our community was very, very supportive and encouraging and positive um, throughout the first part of the evacuations. And even when it came to the time 100 Mile was evacuated as well, even again, the surrounding areas just were so supportive and encouraging and people are offering to support each other, help each other out, um, whether it be accommodations or food or supplies, anything like that. So amongst all the chaos, it's been really, really heartening to see all of the community support and all of us come together to, to help each other out. Kara, was there a moment when, when you guys decided, okay, it's, it's time to get out of here, or was it just a cumulative effect? Um, a little bit of both. We, my, I personally, we decided that 100% will wait until the evacuation order. Um, I, I personally would have rather worried at home versus worried somewhere else. Um, so we were given the evacuation alert, which means get ready. I believe... I can't even remember now, it all blurs together, Wednesday or Thursday. No, no, that's not right. Friday? Yeah, um, just to get ready. So we had all of our stuff packed, ready at the door. So in other words, yeah, this is a process then. And when you, when you got that notice, uh, you, you start gathering things together. Yes, yeah. So they, they want to give us people as much notice as possible and as well to help with the panic. Um, so, yes, that was issued um, well in advance to us being ordered to leave. So we were ready, and we decided to wait until the evacuation order. And the evacuation order was given Saturday night. And within, like, an hour, things changed so quickly. We were outside in our backyard having dinner, and the wind changed. And within 20 minutes, the entire town was covered in smoke. And then another hour after that, they issued the the evacuation order. When you're going through this process... This, this may sound insignificant, but anybody who's had to do this, I, I think they can mm-hmm. probably understand. What do you take? What do you leave? How do you make that choice? It's hard. It's it's really hard. And, I, and it, it all depends on, too, how much space you have, oh, yeah. in my opinion. Um, of course, the recommended important things, you know, important documents, your identification, medication, anything that you'll, you'll need for yourself. Um, us personally, we were able to pack a duffel bag of clothes each. Um, we just got married about a month ago, so we packed up the important um, memories and things that we collected from our wedding. Um, and then, of course, we have pets, so we, we packed them up as well. Well, of course, the pets. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as much as we could grab, really. And it was really, really hard because, you know, there were things of value that we didn't have a choice. You have yeah. to leave. And it, it just comes down to, you know, personal safety and well-being. And ultimately, you know, it's not a very comforting fact, but the fact is, you know, we're okay and we're safe. Our health is good and everything else is replaceable. We saw the pictures again to go back to, to Fort McMurray last year of the evacuations. And as you say, some of it on very short notice. Uh, mm-hmm. Roads were packed. People were driving through very, very thick smoke. What was the journey like for you? Um, well, I, I saw videos of Fort McMurray evacuation as well, and I don't think, in my opinion, it wasn't as um, severe. Um, we were given enough notice to get out. We There was no flames around us. It was smoky. Um, however, the sun did set. It was a full moon that was a crimson red. It was very eerie. Um, but pretty much half the town had left already, so traffic was okay. Um, everyone was very orderly and calm on the roads, which was nice. Um, we were never stopped on the highway, uh, so we were always moving. And there was only one way out of town. 
Um, so we, you know, we just got on the road and we took it slow the best we could and, and got as far as, as we could that night. <sighs> Scared? Apprehensive? What, what were the emotions as you were making their drive? All of them. <laughs> All of them. Um, you know, it's sad to leave. You're worried about what's going to happen, what you've left behind. Um, you know, you want to keep in touch with, with family that are local, but as well as let family long distance know that you're okay. Um, you know, we're tired, um, the stress of just driving, um, not exactly sure where to go, where we're sleeping, just a lot of uncertainty, I think, overall. Have you had any update, I mean, about what's going on at 100 Mile House right now in, in your neighborhood? Um, we have had some. Again, it's hard to really know what information to trust. Um, my interpretation of everything is that the actual fire has not gone into 100 Mile House as of yet. Um, but it is very, very close. Yeah, there's always a but there, isn't there? Yes, and I've heard, and there's been articles, that the weather today is going to be very unpredictable, which might be challenging. Well, we also saw some of those pictures of people that did return to, uh, to Fort McMurray and to, to rubble and uh, to charred wood, and, well, hopefully, and we're praying that uh, that's not going to happen with your situation, nor with the other ones as well. Uh, best of luck with this. Uh, I, we have no idea how long this is going to last and, and the impact it's going to have, you know, the cost, human and otherwise, but uh, you're out and you're safe, and that's the most important thing, isn't it? That's right. And, I mean, we've we've already been told um, 100% we will be evacuated for at least a week. Um, so we've been given that information, which it's okay. It's good to hear at least and answers, you know, some uncertainties. Um, but yeah, you're right. We have, there's no way to tell what's going to happen, how long it's going to last. Um, fires are starting all over the province and they affect everyone. Not just, you know, your hometown because the resources are also very spread very thin. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Kira, stay safe uh, and uh, enjoy Calgary, I guess, for as long as you're going to be there anyway. <laughs> Go to the Stampede. Try to take your mind off it for an hour or two anyway. And, exactly. Uh, and, and all the best to you and, and to your husband as you go forward on this. Thanks so much for sa- spending some time with us today. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Great talking with you. That's uh, Kira Thomas, one of the evacuees, uh, initially from Ontario, who's been living out in the 100-mile house area. And you, of course, have been hearing about that in the news over the last couple of days, uh, one of the very hot spots with the raging forest fires in British Columbia. But she's safe. Good. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.